So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the first riot of the Luddites. Then on Tuesday, we unearthed the mad coincidence of the day two different Dennis the Menaces made their comic strip debuts. On Wednesday, the day the Spanish conquered the last Maya kingdom. Thursday was the day Colonel Sanders sued KFC. And on Friday, we recall how Vincent van Gogh's sister-in-law made his name. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello everyone, welcome to a very special bonus edition of For Formula One's Sake. This is quite unusual. I'm joined, uh, as always, by Terry Saunders. Terry, what's this all about? This is, a, I don't understand why, you're not Chica, I don't like change. <laughs> well, we've got a special guest today. Uh, is it Chica? It is, it is, it is re- renowned motorsport author and journalist Chica Ed. No, it's not, uh, sorry, I've written that down wrong. It's David Tremaine, who is, uh, anyone who knows anything about people who write stuff about motorsport will know that name because he's written lots of books and lots of articles and has covered the sport for a very long time. And he's got a new book. And he's out. finally written a book about me. Almost. You know, many people call you the Jochen Rint of Formula One podcasters. Now, Jochen Rint is famous for dying, then winning the World Championship. I haven't done either of those <laughs> yet. <laughs> well, I mean, not actually dying in real life, but some would say, you know, on stage. Oh, I definitely died a lot then. But then whenever <laughs> I died on stage, I didn't posthumously get awarded the championship at the end. I often you just the world champion of go home. For anyone who hasn't heard of Jochen Rint, and he's he's not often one of the great world champions that's mentioned but David disagrees and has thinks he should be and has written this book to tell us all about him uh, it's now assuming this comes out on Saturday the 5th of September it's 50 years to the day since he died at the Italian Grand Prix and we basically spent about an hour chatting with David so let's go to uh, let's go straight into the the conversation then. This is uh, David Tremaine about his book Jochen Rint, Uncrowned King of Formula One, about the 1970 F1 World Champion. Let's go. Well, Jochen was one of those devil may care guys, and arguably was Germany's first world champion rather than Austria's because he was born in Germany and then both his parents were killed in a bombing raid um, in 1943 and he was taken to Austria to be raised by his maternal grandparents and then forever after identified as being an Austrian. He was a crazy guy, super fast, kind of came out of nowhere, hence 
all the people in established European motor racing saying, who the hell is this guy? Because he came in one weekend in Whitson, um, finished third in his first Formula 2 race at Mallory Park. A couple of days later goes to Crystal Palace and literally annihilates a really class field of all the best drivers. And nobody really had heard of him apart from one very canny guy who you might have heard of called Frank Williams. No, I'm not familiar with him, but uh, we'll hear a bit more about him. I mean, you say he came out of nowhere. It's probably important to contextualise racing at the time. It wasn't like today where you've got, you know, dozens of journalists covering, you know, every single driver from when they're in karting all the way up through. It was quite possible for somebody from a different area of Europe to come over to the UK and for people not really to know who he was. Yeah, absolutely. You didn't have the internet and all that kind of stuff. Um, Frank, of course, knew... Um, of Jochen because Frank raced a lot on the um, what we might call continental Europe in those days. Um, Frank had seen just how quick this guy was. People in Austria of course knew but Jochen had never really raced in 1964 he'd never really raced outside Austria much. He wanted to go as far as he could. He was winning all the races in Austria. Typical Jochen that wasn't good enough. He wanted to go where the best were. And he, he ran at a couple of places, but wasn't noticed until those two, that superb weekend in 1964. So he, he was kind of under the radar, a bit like Stefan Beloff was, um, the, the other German driver in the 80s, who again arrived in the UK, won a Formula 2 race, everyone same headline, who the hell is Stefan Beloff? Just one of those kind of meteors that come along every so often. Was there something about his style of driving that was very different, or was he just quick everywhere compared to the drivers at the time? Well, it wasn't just his style of driving. It was everything about Jochen. So he came from money. His parents had owned a spice mill. Um, his grandfather sort of released a bit of money here and there. But Jochen used to wear things like red jumpers and pink, pink trousers, drove a white E-type. Frank, you know, the minute Frank saw him, it was... What the hell is that guy wearing pink trousers for? And then he had this flamboyance about him that translated into his driving style as well. He was quick. And in those days, you could kind of go sideways, you could boot it on the throttle, you could throw the car around without a physical or a physics um, disadvantage like you'd have now. So Jochen was that kind of... Um, the way I describe it is... People like that make the car dance. They make it kind of shimmy. If you go and watch kids karting, a lot of them are sort of droning around. Every so often you will get the one guy who makes the car shimmy through corners. And that was Jochen with a hint of opposite lock. He was spectacular to watch. And that, of course, is why Frank absolutely adored him. Because in day one, Frank recognised a racer when he saw one. Was it quite unusual then for, for, for drivers to come over to, to the UK to race? I mean, it happens a lot now. We see people come from all over the world. But my understanding is that maybe it wasn't quite so common back in the no, early 60s. Yeah, a fair sort of um, dollop of what you might call overseas drivers. But it was the fact that, you know, often you do Formula 3 and uh, if the word begins to get around that so-and-so is quite quick. But in Jochen's case, he kind of operated under the radar. And Formula 2 was high level then. You had people like Denny Holm, um, Jimmy Clark, Jackie, all those kind of guys were racing in Formula 2 as well as trying to get towards Formula 1. So it was literally just one step below F1, 
suddenly the guy's there and he's right at the front from the minute he arrives. That's, that's what made him stand out so much. Just to back up a little bit to, to before he sort of exploded on the, on the racing scene in the UK, when he was growing up, there was a... It, it wasn't sort of initially that, you know, the fact that it was always his childhood dream to be a racing driver. He sort of ended up there, but he, he did actually grow up with uh, another figure that modern F1 fans will probably know in the shape of a certain Helmut Marco, um, in that they went to school together and then got expelled together. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Helmut's one of my favourite people um, because he's just typical, like Nicky, absolutely no nonsense, says what he thinks. And everyone that I know that, you were, you were laughing about Red Bull drivers just now, all those that have been through the Red Bull mill and kicked out, it's the sort of, but he can't do that. Well, if you know what Helmut and Jochen were like, you would understand that, yes, he can. And here's the why, because they and, and some of their mates used to race. Um, Jochen had an old Beetle to begin with, and the plan was, they would share driving it and you went flat and when you had to lift that was when someone else took over so that was how it began then they used to have these intercity races from like Graz to Vienna and back um, where Jochen had a sinker a rond and initially Helmer had a Steerpuch which was a little bit I think like a Fiat 500 type car then he borrowed his old man Chevy and he wasn't allowed to overtake on the straights because he had a power advantage. So if he wanted to overtake anyone, he had to go around in the corners. And while doing that one time, he had to dodge a truck coming the other way. This is all at night. And went up a bank, and then the car sort of went down the other side of the bank. And the deal was, if you got into trouble, tough. You got yourself out. So everyone else laughed, but nobody helped him to get the car back home. That's what. That's the way both... Helmer and Jochen were raised. This is kind of hell-raising kids. You can see why they got kicked out of school. You know, they would climb out of windows, um, get on their wombats, is how Helmer used to call them. These little mopeds that they had, they'd skid all over the town, annoy everyone, and in the end, both of them were invited to leave, rather than, um, if they'd stayed, they'd have failed. And if they left, the deal was they'd get a, a good school report. So this is almost like sort of, you know, general teenage hijinks, the kind of thing that would probably, they'd end up at the McDonald's car parks, uh, you know, today and hanging out. Yeah. R rather than, you know, uh, a career in karting from the age of six or anything like that. The other thing was um, Jochen didn't have a licence for ages, and then I think he got, finally got pulled a week before he was due to get it by a cop who managed to kind of talk his way out of trouble. It was a very different kind of world. Rambunctious is one word which usually gets applied to um, Jacques Villeneuve, but I think in a way that kind of suits both Jochen and Helmut, and they were very good friends. But, I mean, the idea, if, if you were out with your mates and you shunted your car, I'm sure like mine, everyone would be helping you to get it home. But that, that wasn't the deal there. Oh, I don't know, you haven't met my mates. <laughs> your comparison with Gilles Villeneuve is an interesting one, and, and Terry's point on... On, oh, sorry, Jack Villeneuve. Um, your, your, the question that, that Terry had earlier on driving style, are there any other parallels you could draw with, with other modern drivers in the way that he sort of 
looked behind the wheel and the way that he hustled the car. Yeah, I mean, I, I think actually you mentioned Gilles. Um, in driving style, he and Gilles and Ronnie Peterson and Tom Price, I think, were very much of a muchness. They all threw the car around. They were all armfuls of opposite lock and they all somehow managed to defy the laws of physics and, and not have a penalty for doing that. They were all super quick and they looked at, you know, the Jackies, the Jimmies of the world were super, super quick, but looked dead smooth 99% of the time. So Joachim was, had a wild kind of style and I think in some ways Max Verstappen reminds me of Joachim because he was always quick. You know, you knew when you saw Max, um, all the stuff that he'd done, he was always fast. And Max is like Jochen at the moment, he's, he's just got to find his um, Lotus 72, if you like. Uh. You know, once he gets a car like a Merc, he's going to be very difficult to stop. And Jochen, you always felt the same with him. We were actually having that conversation on the on the regular podcast before, weren't we, of, of, of Max in a car that's clearly not as quick as the Mercedes, but he's regularly up there, at least with Bottas and often in front of him. I don't think he's that far off, to be honest. I think Max and Red Bull are quite astute in that sense, that they downplay the performance. That's, that's clearly a very good car. Um, be interesting to see this weekend, won't it, when they, um, now they've taken away party mode, whether qualifying is quicker and therefore the races are closer I think quali will be closer I'm not sure about the races but Max is probably of all the drivers out there and also he speaks his mind and that was Jochen Jochen always said what he thought it's a very Austrian trait you say what you think you know if, if you and I said what do you think of so and so I might say yeah he's pretty good where a Nicky or a Jochen would just say no he's not good enough when you said earlier about how Jochen's someone who, who the car dances with him, do you think in modern Formula One machinery you you can see that level of driving come out? Can you actually can a driver's talent really show through just in the car, or is are the cars a bit too similar these days? Um, there's a good case for saying they're too similar, but I mean, look at Spa last weekend with Lewis's lap in quali and look at what he did in Styria in the rain when he was a second and a half quicker. Um, at the highest level, it'll, talent will still out. And I mean, Valtteri is very good and he's very quick and he can be quicker than Lewis in quali, but he's rarely a match for him on race day. And everyone, every year it's kind of Valtteri Mark 4, Valtteri Mark 5. And I feel sorry for the guy because he's very quick but he's Lewis Hamilton's teammate. So yes, at the highest level. And Gasly, look what he's doing. I actually think he's doing a super job at the moment. So I think it's disguised a lot, and I'd much rather it went back to the old days when you could jump in a Formula One car, and if you were any good, suddenly you'd be right. Like Jackie. As soon as Jackie got into Formula One, bang, he was right there. So I don't I mean, think that's possible so much now. That's an interesting comparison because we've talked about Jochen making an impact in in sort of the, the the lower formula, but when he actually got into a Formula One car, he didn't exactly set the world on fire straight away, did he? And what's interesting with that is, I mean, the Cooper in '65 was really crap. They were right towards the end of their game, <clears throat> but it is interesting that because when he went to Cooper, when he stayed at Cooper in '66, 
and then John Surtees came in, John was always quicker. And that's, I think that's very interesting. And it was as if, I don't know, I know in his last race for Cooper, Jochen clutched it and blew the engine, which is why he didn't do Mexico in 67, because he'd been effectively fired, um, because he was so sick and tired of, of the car. And I just wonder, nobody ever said it, but I wonder how fully committed he was hauling that tank around. So can you sort of outline again for people who haven't haven't read the book yet and haven't haven't followed his his career particularly the journey that he had in Formula One as you say he was in a, a, a not particularly competitive car to start with and he was sort of tied into a long term contract with Cooper wasn't he it was a while before he got into a machine that was capable of of winning yeah I mean he had this little one and a half liter Cooper in the sixty five through his contract with BP and then he had the Cooper Maserati V twelves three liter cars from 66 onwards, 66 and 7, and they were overweight, underpowered, it was just a, it was actually the V12 engine Maserati had in 1957, bought out for 3 litres, so you know, there's nothing, you look at the back of that car, and what a mess, it's funny because Ron Dennis was Jochen's chief mechanic, and we all know how fastidious Ron is, he must have hated all the loose pipe work and all the junk on the back. Um, and then at one stage they had a three-plug uh, three cylinder head. So they had three spark plugs per cylinder. So 36 altogether. And Ron remembers Keith Duckworth walking past that and saying, if you can't ignite the, the fuel and air mix with one plug per cylinder, you should give up. So it was a horrible car. And there were times when, like at Spa in 66, in the rain, Jochen was almost flying. And Gurney told me once that he, he was following him down the Master Strait. And the rain began on the downhill slope to Eau Rouge, which everyone's familiar with now, rather than the start before La Source. So they go down to, to Eau Rouge, they go up to Lake Homme, but then the circuit continued. And he went through a very fast right-hander called Burnenville at about 100 and 50 miles an hour and then suddenly everyone ran into rain people were spinning left right and center and Gurney followed Jochen down the master straight which had a kink in the middle of it too actually and swears that Jochen spun through 360 about nine times and just gathered it up and kept on Jack Brabham meanwhile had nearly killed himself was convinced he was going to die and had slid and just touched an inch higher part of tarmac which kept him on the level instead of going off the road and Jochen led that race for a long time until it dried out and Surtees caught and passed him so that was his best race in a Cooper thereafter he was fast in it but it just was a hopeless car then he went to Brabham for 1968 they'd been world champions for two years in a row but had a different Repco engine which was horribly unreliable and he had a third in the old car and a fifth in the new one. That was his sole result. But he had three pole positions that year in a car that wasn't, probably wasn't really a match for the Lotus and the Matra. So 1968 was when he really began to leave his mark. And then you have the choice. Jimmy Clark was killed in 68, so there was a vacancy at Lotus. What do you do? Do you stay with Jack or do you go with Lotus? And Lotus cars won world championships but they also had a habit of killing their drivers 
and Jochen in the end decided, yeah, it's Lotus, and then had a very, very fractious relationship with Colin Chapman. Partly, I suspect, because he wasn't Jimmy, and Colin was still hurting from Jimmy's death. Partly because Jochen answered back, and wasn't going to take it lightly laying down when aerofoils fell off and made him crash. And he, he crashed in Spain, both he and Graham Hill, when they had the old high wings. Both of them had huge shunts. And Graham sort of did the decent thing and kept quiet. Jochen broke his nose, missed a race, and then wrote a letter to the media criticising Chapman and wings on lotuses. And, you know, so there was a huge bust-up. And then eventually they kind of had some kind of working relationship. And at the end of the year he wins his first Grand Prix. And he'd have loved that because it was the richest one of the, the lot in America. And he had Piers Courage, his best mate, was second. So it was a great day. And then 1970, eventually they get the Lotus 72 working properly. He's already won Monaco, then he wins four races on the bounce in the Lotus 72. Goes to Monge and he's a shoe-in for the World Championship. It's, it, I will talk about 70 shortly, but up until that point, he'd, he'd had you know a number of years in Formula One. I just wanted to touch a little bit on how he'd done against his teammates. We've already mentioned Surtees that he, he wasn't necessarily quicker than Surtees and he'd had quite, he had quite a number of pretty high profile teammates. How do you think he was perceived going into the 1970 season? Because he'd not exactly blown all his teammates away. It's interesting in 67 Pedro Rodriguez was pretty much as quick as Jochen and at Spa they had a real fight. Um, Jochen hated Pedro, partly because of that. 68, he was always, nearly always quicker than Jack. 69, he wiped the floor with Graham, to be fair. Um, also, to be fair, Graham was a, a far different stage of his own career. So it wasn't kind of Graham at his peak versus Jochen at his peak. Um, and then in 70, of course, he was way ahead of John Miles, mainly because John was a sort of typical fill-in Lotus number two, didn't get much attention. Good driver, but um, you know, Chapman wouldn't have been interested in what was happening on John's car. So in 1970, you had Jackie Stewart and Chris Amon in March 701s from this new company set up by Max Mosley and Robin Hurd. And Jochen hated March because the original idea was for 1970 that Jochen, Bernie Eccleston and Robin Hurd would get together and effectively what became March would have been the, the Rint um, Eccleston team and one of the guys, one of the directors of March was a man called Graham Coker and the car was basically the first March was built in his garage so Max Mosley started calling March Gremshek Racing because Jochen had disparagingly said I don't want to drive a car that's been built in Gremshek is how he pronounced Graham's shack sort of thing. So you get to South Africa and there are the two Marches on the front row and Jochen's there as well in the mix and that must have been massively annoying for him so he's in the Lotus and these damn upstart newcomers are quicker but as the year evolved, it was clear that it was going to be Jochen's 
opportunity when the Lotus 72 started working. So it was his championship to lose, basically. Do you think he was the favourite going into 1970? Yes, I do, actually, because March was an unknown. Um, Jack Brabham had a really good car, but was 44 years old. So everybody thought if Jochen and Colin can just calm down and get on with each other, um, yeah, they've got a really good chance. And the irony is that Jack wanted to retire at the end of 69 and invited Jochen to rejoin. And Jochen loved working with Jack and vice versa. And the Brabham was always a really good car. And he talked to Bernie about it and Bernie's advice was um, if you want a good safe car go to Brabham, if you want to win the World Championship go with Lotus. But with the um, rider that they're fragile and it might not work out so well. There, there's always been that sort of uh, that fragility of Lotus in that kind of period, and I suppose again for for listeners who who are not that familiar with this era, this was about the time when it was the very early days of aerodynamics. Sort of within within a couple of years was the first time anyone had really bothered with them. So so wings were starting to come in. They were very basic, and as you've mentioned before, they weren't particularly reliable in terms of staying on the car. So there was there was quite a bit of fragility already in the Lotus, and then there was this added complication of, of, of aero as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Chapman's idea of uh, the perfect race car was the, the one like Jimmy had at um, Watkins Glen in 67 when the rear suspension broke a lap from home. Uh, his ideal car would be the car that broke as it crossed the finish line. And had lightness was his frame, his phrase. Um, so yeah, they were fragile where Brabham's were strong, but also light and also nimble. Um, and yeah, it was like Lotus, Brabham and Ferrari started experimenting with chassis mounted wings that were just slightly above the driver's head. And then it was Chapman who followed the lead Jim Hall had set with the Chaparral sports cars of putting them on great big struts up in the clean air way above and it started off with one on the back mounted on the rear wheel uprights and eventually got to one on the front as well and I mean they looked stupid in retrospect mm. they looked ridiculous but Chapman in particularly in Spain in 69 when Jochen and Graham both crashed had extra bits added by the mechanics extra bits of aluminium on either end of the wings and there was no science to it there was no sort of measurement of drag and downforce because they were only just beginning to realize what downforce was and they wobble about and had bracing wires to hold them and in the end both lotuses broke the uprights and the wings collapsed at the fastest part of the course where you come over a brow at about 160 miles an hour and Jochen's was a huge shunt and he crashed into Graham's car which had crashed a few laps earlier and you just think this was a massive sort of thing you know both drivers could have been killed in in the same place in the race and by the next time out in Monaco they did the Thursday morning with wings and the CSI which was what became the FIA banned them just said you've got to you can only have the lower ones again so all of this you know Jochen was brave as Dick Tracy but he was also a realist and knew how easy it was to 
to die in a car, even without things like that happening at that period of Formula One. So he wasn't going to sit back and just say, "Okay, fair enough." Because it's interesting. Because you mentioned the letter he wrote. Because that was unheard of in those days, wasn't it? For a driver to be speaking out about safety, let alone anything else. And it's kind of naivety almost, but a, mm. an endearing honesty that he just wrote this open letter to Motoring News and Autosport um, saying how ridiculous wings were and how unhappy he was with the Lotus and everything else. Can you imagine Max writing to the mags now about Red Bull? Mm. Or, or worse still, Charles Leclerc writing about Ferrari, which is unthinkable. <laughs> But then, what was Chapman's reaction? I mean, was there any? Chapman went apeshit. He was, you know, <laughs> Chapman hated. Here's, here's the thing: in the Tasman series in '68, everyone thinks the first wing on a race Formula One car was a Brabham or a Ferrari at Spa. But in the Tasman series, Jim Clark and the Porteous brothers, who were running the operation, um, the Tasman series was in Australia and New Zealand in January and February. So like a mini Formula One series before the, the big one. And they decided that if they had a little wing at the back of the car, it might help to sort of pin it down a bit. So they found an old rotor blade from, an air, from a helicopter and mounted it. And Jim Clark and Colin were like brothers. And Jim was kind of driver and team manager, and he phones Colin one night to say, this wing thing we've got on the back of the car is fantastic. And Chapman's attitude was, get that off now, nobody puts things on my cars. So Colin didn't like drivers that told him what to do to his cars, how to fix them, how to make them safe, or anything else. That wasn't, that wasn't a driver's job. Wow, even if it was Jim Clark? Yeah, even, even if it was Jimmy. Wow. So yeah, so it didn't react well to uh, being called out by Jochen in the press then? Sure as hell didn't go down well. And then you had the British Grand Prix where the dreadful Lotus 63 four-wheel drive car was, uh, Chapman wanted Graham and Jochen to race them. I mean, it was a piece of crap. And he'd actually sold all the 49s. So Jochen gets there expecting to drive a competitive car and he's got this old four-wheel drive tank to drive, so he just blew his top, and in the end, Chapman bought back or borrowed back two of the 49s for him and Graham to drive. And then Jochen nearly won the race, probably would have, but like Monza 67, there wasn't enough fuel in the Lotus, or he didn't pick up the last gallons. And his great fight with Jackie ended when he had to make a pit stop to top up with fuel. So that's another race another potential first win lost. All these things are happening, because you're not going to always run at the front in the Lotus, but something always went wrong. And by then, he just about had it. And actually, talking of things going wrong, I was re- the Indy 500 that he didn't qualify for, is that right? Yeah, he crashed in the, in the Eagle. Yes, and there, was, and there was one in the Indy 500 where the mechanics had done so much to the car, um, is that right? Where they taken a, a lug off one of the wheel nuts? Um, is that right? I don't think so. I don't know. That doesn't ring any bells. I know that when oh. he crashed the Eagle, he was so calm. He was calm at getting out of the car and asking a marshal to light 
if he had a light for his ciggy than the marshals. <laughs> and the marshals hand was shaking so much he could barely light Jochen's cigarette. And he just stepped out of this thing and, okay. It's... That's interesting that that was his reaction because there's there's a a, a a part in your book during his early days when he had a, an early crash in his career, and almost quit racing there and then. Like he decided, oh, it's too dangerous. I'm not going to do it. It's funny, is it? But in yeah. Indy yeah. was the magic sort of bullet because you could earn so much money there, so much more than you could from a season of F1 at that time. And he, I don't think he particularly wanted to go, but they were all drawn because of the money but the, the the whole attitude to to danger and death at that time was obviously completely different than it is today so we're in a time of technological development the speeds are getting higher safety is still lagging behind the the technological development in terms of pace so there are seat belts which i'm sure we'll come to in a bit um and that you know they're starting to bring in full face helmets but a lot of drivers are dying at this point, or being or being injured, including you know people that that Jochen knew and was close to. Piers and and Bruce, yeah. I mean, it was one of, I would say, the sixties was probably the most dangerous era. It was a great time. I was in my Clark book. I was looking at stuff, and you probably had a thirty, thirty-three percent chance of being killed, minimum. I don't like those odds. And you were paying, if you lived in England, you were paying 93% income tax at the highest rate, which is why Jim Clark went to live in Bermuda stroke Paris, and Jackie went to Geneva. Um, Yeah, it was a super dangerous era. Cars got fire regularly. Seatbelts only came in in 67. And of course, yeah, when Jochen won at um, Zandvoort, Bruce had just been killed, and then you had Joachim finally gets the car that he can walk away from Jackie Stewart and Jackie X with, and he gets on the podium and learns Piers Courage was killed. It's great, mate. And everyone thinks of Joachim as being this cavalier who was fearless, but he wasn't. He was a very um, shrewd, pragmatic man. Um, Right from the beginning of 70, he was thinking, if I win the World Championship, I should retire. And then he had this kind of ongoing battle with himself all year. Do I stop? If I win, do I stop? Or am I stupid because I can earn more money as the champion? Maybe I do another year. Or do I really want to give up racing? You know, there was this turmoil in his head. And he had people like Gurney that he knew. Dan was sort of brought back into McLaren in Bruce's, after Bruce's death and found himself not in a friendless society but a lot of the people he'd raced against and was friends with, especially Jimmy, but people like that weren't there anymore. So if someone with Dan's experience was sort of thinking, do I want to still do this? It's understandable and in Jochen's case he was very well aware of the risk. And he had his show because he'd started the Jochen Rint show, which was a racing car show in Vienna in 69, being very successful. And he was also a really good businessman, which is partly why he and Bernie had such a great friendship. They just understood and liked the same things. So he had this constant sort of 
paradox, do I carry on racing and make lots of money? Or do I quit and go into business full time? Well, let's let's talk a bit about the 1970 season then. I mean, we'll we'll sort of we'll lead up to the Italian Grand Prix, and and we, we already know you know the the final outcome of that. But can you give us a potted history of the season up to that point, uh, and how it had been going? We had South African racing shunted ironically, um, collided with Chris Amon in the March at the start, and then I think his engine broke, and then race of champions he got beaten by Jackie in the March. Which is interesting because I was at that race and he was, he wasn't making the car shimmer, let's say. And it was a non-championship race, so I don't know, but I mean, he finished second, but it was, it wasn't a sort of balls out, all slidey round kind of thing that you might have expected. Um, and then in the Spanish Grand Prix, he had the Lotus 72, which was awful. And it had a lot of anti-dive and anti-squat in the suspension, which what that means is it doesn't dip its nose under braking or sit its tail down under acceleration. Um, it's a clever way of doing it and trying to keep a, a stable platform for the car. But it was horrible and apparently it had no feel. And telling Chapman that his new super chisel-shaped baby with side radiators and a look that had never been seen before was a piece of junk, didn't go down very well either. Then he went to Spa and he was quick there, but the engine broke. Um, then, he, then there's Monaco, um, and he was kind of a bit like a, a teenager that's in a bit of a snit all weekend. <laughs> didn't qualify particularly well, didn't even race particularly well, he was kind of running eighth for a lot of the time between, behind the mattress. Jackie and Chris were out front fighting for a while in their marches. Jack had gone pretty well. Jack was running near the front. And then people kept retiring and about halfway through, it's as if he just flicked the switch, suddenly realised, well, actually, I, might, I could, maybe I could win this. And then he starts turning in these super quick laps, quicker, way quicker than he went in qualifying, quicker than Jackie went in qualifying. And he's closing, closing, closing all the time on Jack, who's the only one of the top liners left. And he forces Jack basically into a really embarrassing mistake, literally in the last corner. Jack slides straight off, Jochen nips through to win. And it was a sensational victory. But it could have been a lot easier if he'd been on it for the whole race. But it was like Jochen at his finest, and suddenly thinking, well... Yeah, okay. And then he gets the 72 from Zanville onwards. And a couple of their races were a little bit lucky. Like, um, Zanville, we dominated France. Um, Jackie Ix and Jean-Bierre Beltoise were off in the lead and they both broke down and then Jochen came through to win. Um, Brands Hatchie led and then Jack passed him in the Brabham that Jochen could have been driving and was going to win, and then um, there was a problem with the fuel metering or the fuel settings. Jack ran out of fuel and Jochen won, and then he beat Jackie X at Hockenheim in the, the Ferrari, which was suddenly his big opposition. And then he goes to Austria and the engine broke, brakes, and he gets out of the car and walks back and sees 
um, Heinz Pruller and people like that just laughs and just took Mota Kaput and bursts out laughing. So he's kind of still happy-go-lucky in a way, but he obviously felt that he was on his way to a championship. So we we get towards the Italian Grand Prix, and he's uh, how how big is his lead at this point? Where where the things sit? Oh, I can't remember how big it was, but he was well set because the Ferrari hadn't um, the the Ferrari was just beginning to get reliable, but the Ferraris were quick at Monza, and Chapman had this bee in his bonnet about running without wings. And I spoke to John Miles, and John thought the car was awful without them. And bear in mind. Arguably, the Lotus 72 was the first car designed with wings as an integral part of the design. So it had the chisel wedge shape and these three-tier wings at the back. And the gearing was like 205 miles an hour on the straights, which was pretty good for a three-litre cosy in those days. And Jochen felt the car was quite spooky, but I agree with Bernie. Jochen could handle Spooky, but he wasn't happy and he didn't think it was the best way to go. Um, John Miles told Chapman the car needed the wings and Chapman wouldn't hear about it. Um, so they were all a little bit worried on the Friday because they hadn't been super quick, but then they knew they needed to change to slightly better gearing. And Jochen was still quite a, upbeat, quite happy. Um, stayed in the Hotel de la Ville, which funnily enough is where we usually stay, and had breakfast with Emerson Fittipaldi, who was new, the new boy in the Lotus team, who he'd been helping, and told Emerson he wanted him to lead his Formula 2 team the following year. So, you know, everything seemed fine. There were the usual kind of tensions, but nothing particularly portentous as they went into that final practice session. So run us, run us through what happened in the practice session. Well, <clears throat> the race before, John Miles had had a failure. The, the Lotus was in a, innovative insofar as it had inboard rear brakes, so they mounted by the gearbox, and they had drive shafts running to the wheels to transmit the drive, but also the, the braking forces. And then Chapman had put inboard brakes at the front, as well, and that's to reduce the amount of weight that you have to suspend on the car, what they call unsprung weight, um, which conferred handling advantages. So it's quite advanced, but one of those brake shafts at the front had broken on John Miles's car, and it had veered to one side violently, and he'd managed to sort of bring it to a safe halt. And personally, I believe that's what happened with Jochen, who was going down the back straight at Monza, you get to a 180 degree corner called the Parabolica that brings you back onto the pit straight. And he was going down there like 180 miles an hour into the braking zone. When he put the brakes on, the car just violently veered to the left. And because it had a wedged nose, it went under the barrier and there was a, a staunching for the barrier as well. So the car slid up to that and then the rotational force just ripped the whole front end off. And Jochen hated wearing crutch straps. So he'd have the shoulder harness and the leg straps, but not do up the crutch strap. And then he kind of submarined in the cockpit with the violence of the impact. Suffered very nasty 
um, leg injuries, but worse still, the seatbelt came up and inflicted injuries to his chest and thorax, which ultimately proved fatal. And that was that. This was, uh, again, at a, a time when, when safety was not at its greatest. What, what were the sort of the rules on, on seatbelts then? Was, was, was he supposed to be wearing it or was it down to driver choice? Pretty much driver choice. I mean, everyone, Chapman, would have wanted him wearing them. And everyone else who had seatbelts wanted to do all of the belts up, of course. But there's just Jochen didn't like the feel of them. And that ultimately probably cost him his life. He might have got away with the accident. Um, I think he'd have been quite badly injured with his feet anyway. But as it was, he had no chance. I was going to say, you write very movingly about the aftermath and of Jackie Stewart driving over there. And also the scene with his wife and, and everyone hiding the information from her of what's happened straight after yeah I mean I think that thing about Jackie is so moving and um, basically what happened was um, as so often did in those days as well you know Jackie went to see Nina and told her that Jochen had had an accident and to begin with I think he said no he's, he's, he's fine he's fine the, the sort of usual things that you do. Then Jackie had gone to the medical centre, seen Jochen basically lying on this slab unattended, and Jackie is convinced that Jochen was dead by then. But the, the sort of convention under Italian law is nobody ever dies at the circuit. They always die en route to the hospital, because if they die at the circuit, the law... Um, the police can come in and stop the whole event while they do an investigation. That's pretty much what happened with Senna. I was going to say, yeah, that's still the same thing with Senna's day, isn't it? Quite possibly, Ayrton was dead before he left the circuit. Um, but that was the way they did it. Um, then, you know, Jackie's an emotional man anyway, who would suppress his emotions like a deflating balloon, as he used to describe it. Um, was hugely, hugely upset, but then got in his car, drove out, did the fastest laps he'd ever done that weekend, to qualify second, I think, and then, you know, just the complete and utter pro, and then says, you know, as soon as I drove into the pit lane, I could taste salt again, and I was crying when I drove in, and it was that ability to sort of distance himself from that emotional thing while he was driving. And he comes back in and it's like the superhero driver is a human again. And then the next day, Helen has to clear Jochen's room at the Dilla Ville. Jackie's wife. You imagine what it must have been like for the wives of that era. And Nina, of course, had helped to comfort Sally Courage when Piers was killed. And now Sally did the same for Nina and so did Helen. Just an awful era. It sounds like it. I mean, the title of your book is is the Uncrowned King of of Formula One because obviously, you know, terrible events at uh, at Monza, but he went on to be champion even though he didn't live to see it. Uh, very briefly, can you just touch on the rest of the season and and you know how how that played out? Yeah, um, I mean, just one final thing about the Hotel de la Ville, which I I didn't 
put in the book because I didn't know it at the time I wrote it but Jochen stayed in room 307 and many many years later we were talking to the um, Nadi family in the bar at the Dillaville um, one evening the two brothers that run the place and they said they discovered later after 1973 a, a motorcyclist called Jano Saarinen was killed at Monza in the Italian Grand Prix and he had stayed in room 307 as well and they said at the minute they didn't realize for years that the two drivers had been in the same room and ever since they have never let that room to another race driver it's kind of spooky isn't it there's a, a, there's a lot of superstitions around racing so yeah, I suppose you don't need any uh, possibility or any I mean ironically it was Tim Mayer Teddy Mayer's son who was an FIA steward who was staying in 307 that year and we were laughing at him when he said he didn't feel very well but, um, <laughs> so the rest of the year um, Lotus missed the Canadian Grand Prix which Ix wins um, so Ix is suddenly if he wins in um, America and Mexico he can beat Jochen to the championship so in the meantime Chapman gets rid of dear old John Miles who pretty much had lost his appetite for Grand Prix racing anyway after Monza puts two rookies Emerson Fittipaldi who's done two Grand Prix I think two or three um, in the third Lotus puts him in the number one car and Rainer Vissel in the second and using the engine from Jochen's car at Monza Emerson goes to Watkins Glen and wins the US Grand Prix at the same time Jackie Hicks has a fuel injection or fuel line problem and his Ferrari needs a pit stop finishes fourth which stops him winning the world championship and Hicks is a funny guy he's a very private man um, he and Jochen didn't like each other they raced a lot together in Formula 2, they raced a lot in Formula 1. Um, I think they both thought the same about the other, that he was, each thought the other was arrogant. But X is a lovely man because he just said, I did not want to win. I'm glad I broke down in America, and he did win in Mexico. So I'm glad I broke down in America because I didn't want to win a championship against a man who wasn't there to defend himself and that Jochen deserved the title. Once that title was decided then, what was the reaction within F1 and the motorsport community? Was it a sort of sense that, you know, that's how it should have been? Yeah, yeah it yeah. was. I mean, it happened once before with a, a very hugely popular American racer in the 20s called Jimmy Murphy, who won the United States Championship posthumously. And it would happen again, sadly, in British Formula 3000 with Derek Warwick's brother Paul but at that time you know there was a school of thought to say Jochen's slate should be kind of wiped clean he should be taken out of and there was outrage when anyone thought that because it would have been so disrespectful and there was a very good quiz question at McLaren one time to say name four Finns who received the world championship and everyone comes up with Hakkinen, Rosberg and Kimi Raikkonen of course the fourth one was Nina Rint she was Finnish and Nina accepted Jochen's award at the FIA prize giving that year that is, that is a good quiz fact I have to say 
I mean, it's, it's a really sad story, isn't it? Because, you know, everything was just coming together for Jochen. He'd waited so long, and I, personally, I think he decided he would do another year. Um, there's a letter that he wrote to his half-brother saying, I'm going to stop. Um, Jackie always thought he would carry on for another year because it would be senseless not to exploit your world championship. And if he carried on two or three years, he'd have probably been champion two or three more times. Well, this was a question I was going to ask, actually. I sort of, you know, had things been different and he had decided to carry on, how would he have fared against the likes of Stuart and Fittipaldi and, and Lauder and, and Hunt? He was already faring um, well against um, Jackie. And Jackie would be the first one to say Jochen was super quick. And if you look at that little middle era of the 60s when if he couldn't prove it in Formula 1, Jochen proved it time and again in Formula 2. He was the king of Formula 2 and could beat Clark and Stewart in Formula 2. Um, Bernie and Robin Hood are both convinced that Jochen was quicker than both of both Jackie and um, Jimmy. Personally, I think they were all pretty much the same. They all had different attributes. But Jackie was very quick and Jimmy was... Um, Jimmy never looked quick, but he was. But the three of them together, it would be like having three Lewis Hamiltons racing at the moment. And against, against say, Fittipaldi, if, he'd be, if they'd been teammates of Lotus, Jochen would have been faster. So he'd have been Looking right back. there up to, say, 1973, when he might have decided to retire. Looking back now then, aside from the label that, that's always attached to him of being the posthumous world champion, where do you think he sits within the, the pantheon of, of F1 world champions? That's an ace question, because I was thinking the other day, if you did a top 20 Formula 1 drivers, you would undoubtedly have Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart in there somewhere. But a lot of people wouldn't put Jochen in there. And that's, that brings home to me how, you know, the kind of folly of trying to compare across eras, because... How could you have them and not him? Results-wise, he might not have had the same, but talent-wise, he was right in their class. So, overall, I mean, Jochen was an outstanding Formula One driver and arguably the quickest of an era that was probably two, three seasons, say 68 to 70. But he was the fastest guy out there. Jackie was... The race he and Jackie had at Silverstone in 1969, I think, epitomises what motorsport should be. So you're two guys passing and repassing anything up to 30 times a lap, fighting each other, but giving way if the other guy sort of had a better line, they would signal each other past, and they just stuck together, and they were doing fighting like that and running at lap record speed. So no blocking, no impeding, nothing like that, just pure balls out racing and we'll decide it on the last lap. And to me that's that's like proper night's jousting as opposed to Formula One these days where you block people and while their tires wear out. Yeah, that was probably the best Formula Race one race of all time in that sense that the two leaders fought so hard. And they were very evenly matched. 
Well, thank you very much for that, David. That was super interesting. Thanks very much to David. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So here's an interesting fact. I learned the word posthumous via Jock and Rin. What, Not just... that he told me himself. <laughs> That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Hey, <laughs> hey, young Terry. Went... When I was nine years old in, I believe, the BBC Formula One magazine, there was a list of world champions on a page and one said posthumous. And I think I asked my mum, what does that mean? And then she looked it up. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so that's it. That was the first time I'd encountered that word as a nine-year-old. It's a, well, I mean, it's a word that, frankly, I hope we don't have to encounter that many more times in a Formula One context. He's the only one uh, so far. Let's touch wood that that doesn't change. I enjoyed that, though. I learned a lot. Yeah. I'm sorry we didn't have quite as many jokes as we normally do. Yeah, I did my normal thing of, like, when I'm confronted with people who know what they're doing, I, I get less cocky. <laughs> I don't know. That just shine, shine retiring well, in like, real life. Or like that question I asked about the Indy 500. Yes. I definitely read that in the book this morning. Like, I read that. It was definitely true. There's a th- He didn't qualify for Indy 500 because the mechanic a mechanic had taken the nut off or something and it got in the way. I can't remember exactly. I only skimmed, I only skimmed read it. But um, <laughs> it was definitely in there. And then he kind of said, I don't know what I'm, talk- I'm talking about. And I was like, I didn't have the confidence. It's his book. Well, I mean, judging by the fact that you skim read it and can't remember the details versus he wrote it and carefully researched it, I'm more inclined to believe him. Uh, you've Me too. I don't trust myself either, but it's definitely in there. Hang on, I've got the book here. I'm going to find it. If you yeah, if you do want to find out, get the book. It is good for all us joking that we hadn't read it read it all the way through. I'm continuing to read it, and it is really good. I've read it now, by the way. I've read it all it's, now. It is very good. It's called Jochen Rint, Uncrowned King of Formula One, uh, published by Evero Publishing. There's so much detail about what racing was like back then. Yeah, I would thoroughly recommend it. After the final practice session of Indy 500, I'm reading from the book, it was discovered that one of the mechanics had carried out a private modification of the car, hacking off a lug supporting the throttle cable, oh, I said wheel nut, to make tank installation easier. He replaced the lug with tape, which allowed the cable outer and inner core to move together and thus prevented full throttle being used, which is why he didn't qualify. Yeah, but you said wheel nut. It's a completely different thing. I said nut. (laughs) I said wheel nut. nut. I'm so glad you're not not a mechanic. (laughs) Chica will be back next week to do these bits that we clearly can't do. Do you remember that time we did it, just the two of us, Phil? Yeah, got the worst reviews of any episode we've ever done. That's what it's like. So Chica will be with us next week to discuss the Italian Grand Prix and Ferrari using their new loophole of two engines per car. (laughs) I bloody need it. Anyway, thank you. And Williams. Bye. Yeah, Williams as well. Yeah, bye. Podcast Network. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Parts.